Many came to hear Jesus, but the only one who found him was the one who didn't try to hide his true condition. Like, I have no idea how many people were at this party. But I want you to think about the tragedy of this party, and I want you to see this for your own life. I mean, maybe there's 20 men, maybe there's 30 men. I have no idea how many people are packed into this home of this prominent Pharisee. But there is only one who found Jesus, and it was the one who didn't try to hide his true condition. See, in this story, Jesus gives himself to the humble. He doesn't give himself to those who think that they're righteous. And I just wonder how many times we miss out on God's movement in our lives because we'd rather show up to meet him in our false condition than we would in our true condition. See, God's looking for a church that's gonna stop showing up and acting like everything's okay. A church that is content to show up to just meet him in their false condition. He's looking for something different than that because he's looking to give himself to the humble. Jesus gives himself to the humble. Uh, we're in week seven of a teaching series just simply called Jesus. And uh, in this series, what we've been doing is we have been uh, looking at Jesus's life, uh, looking at our, our lives, and really just asking the question, are there some things about Jesus's life that should be true of our life? Like, are there some things we see in him that, that we, we should maybe see in us as well? And then how do we get from here to there? Really been what we've been going through over the last several weeks. And we're going to continue doing this all the way up until uh, Easter Sunday. So I brought this water bottle up on stage with me today and I'll take the lid off for a second, and I'm curious, curious to know like what you think would happen if I just began to shake this water bottle about as hard as I possibly could. Try it, give it a shot, give it a shot. I think we all would expect that the water would go everywhere, right? The front row at least, maybe the second row uh, would get wet. Everything in the immediate proximity to me would, would get wet. The question I really want you to consider is not what would happen, but Why? Like, why would the water go everywhere? Now, the answers we'd come up with in the room are probably like, well, uh, you know, Pastor Jordan, like, there's no lid on your water bottle. That's probably why the water would go everywhere. I could even put the lid on, and maybe water's still leaking out, and you're going, well, it's not on very tight, you know? Maybe the, the lid's loose. Some other answers would be, well, Pastor Jordan, it's because you're, you're shaking the water bottle. Like, if you weren't shaking it, then... Uh, the water would just, would just stay where it's supposed to be, right? Or maybe some of you would get scientific and pin it on like the law of gravity or physics or whatever it is. There's probably an element of truth to like all of those answers. But in my opinion, the real reason for why the water would be coming out of the water bottle is because the water bottle is filled with water. So let me, let me say it like this. What is coming out of, what is coming out of the bottle is what is in the bottle because of what is being done to the bottle. It's the classic thought of like what is on the inside is what comes out. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, the way he acts, the way he talks, the way he loves, what we see externally in Jesus' life is, is what is true about him internally, right? Because Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus is gentle. Jesus is full of grace and truth. He's forgiving. And so... What exists inside of him is what ends up flowing out of him, right? And, and how many of y'all know that we are no different? Like, we're, we're no different. That, that what is in us is, is what comes out of us. And so in this series, what we're doing is we're looking at the life of Jesus, really with this belief that 2,000 years ago in the Gospels, there was an entirely new way of life that was introduced called the way of Jesus. Jesus brings this, this new way of living onto the scene 2,000 years ago. 
And, and uh, this, this way of life, this way of Jesus, it's upside down, it's counter in, in nature to the dominant like, like, like values and ethics and rhythms of culture. It's an invitation by Jesus to us into a way of life, an experience with life that, that is, is far different than maybe what the average person experiences with life uh, here on planet Earth. And, and so what we've been re- really talking about is the way of Jesus. How do we live into this way? And what we've been talking about is, is the way to really live into the way of Jesus is to live into three uh, real, real dominant thoughts, three main thoughts. And it's number one, to be with Jesus, if you're taking notes. Number two is to become like Jesus. And three is then to do the kinds of things that Jesus did in this world. So we are right there in the middle of the series right now where we are looking in depth at what it means to become like Jesus. And... Uh, and, and so one of the ways, I think one of the best ways to start to get our mind around how to become like Jesus is start to look at his life in the Gospels and start to notice the kinds of things that are flowing out of his life. Because the things that are flowing out of him are reflective of the things that are in him, right? And so then, so then once we do that, we start to take a look at our own life and we say, okay, what kinds of things are flowing out of my life? What, 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 what's the fruit of my life? Because it's reflective of what exists inside of me and is what is coming out of me. Is it anything that looks anything close like Jesus? This, this, is why, this is why the Apostle Paul, he tells us to be so mindful about what we allow to live on the inside. In fact, Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul writes this. He says, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So what Paul is saying is he's saying, hey, don't let these, don't let these values, these rhythms, these postures that you do not see in Jesus live on in you. Right? Don't let these things that we don't find in Jesus, that we don't see in his life, go ahead and live on in you. And in verse 12, Paul continues this thought. He says, he doesn't just say put these things to death. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So Paul's saying, hey, we got to put to death what is earthly in us. And, and for a lot of us, quite honestly, it just comes down to good old-fashioned pride. If we're honest. It just comes down to good old-fashioned pride. How many of y'all know we live in a world that is shocked by acts of humility? But it is not shocked by acts of pride. And I just want to tell you today that we cannot take on the likeness of Jesus, which is what we're trying to do without taking on a life of humility. Like this is, this is who Jesus says he is. This is what Jesus says he is like. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus talks about this and and uh, he, just, he just says this in, in verse 28. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now this is an incredibly famous passage of Scripture where Jesus is describing himself as gentle and humble. Gentle and humble. Now my general rule of thumb with humility is that anybody who says they're humble isn't. But like not so with Jesus, right? Because Jesus isn't, you know, he's not, uh, he's not bragging here. He's not like, like, like talking himself up. There's no false humility even in this comment. Like what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 11 is he is pulling back the veil of his heart to reveal who he really is. He's describing who he is so that you and I can see him for who he really is. The word that Jesus uses here to describe or, or, or the, the word Jesus uses here for humble is a word that we could probably uh, 
interpret to really mean the one who is humiliated. So think, think about that thought. Like Jesus, Jesus is really saying, I am gentle and, and I am the one who is humiliated. And we obviously we know what that humiliation looked like as he would leave, you know, uh, all of the, uh, the riches and the glory and the worship of heaven and he would come as a child, come as a man, live and die. Ultimately, like the humiliation that he went through Jesus is saying, I am gentle and I am the one who is humiliated. Do we even begin to understand at all the nature of Jesus' own heart? I just believe that there is a humility in the way of Jesus that he is trying to reclaim in us as we live into the way of Jesus. If you're taking notes today, look at this thought with me. Practicing the way of Jesus is not a series of life hacks or self-care. It is a a violent encounter with self-death in the pursuit of God. Practicing the way of Jesus is not a series of life hacks for self-care. It is a violent encounter with self-death in the pursuit of God. It's a laying down of my life. It's a humbling of myself so that I can take on the life and the way of Jesus. So this, this series that we're in is really anchored in a lot of ways out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which, which a lot of us are probably familiar with. It's a very famous passage of Scripture on love. And, and even though we're not teaching directly out of 1 Corinthians uh, 13 in, in this series, like every, every single week. Uh, in a series like this, it, it, it really is a guiding passage for us. And like I said, it's, it's one of the most famous passages of Scripture we have, other than John 3.16. It might be the most famous. It's for sure in the top five, read by Christians and non-Christians alike. And when you read 1, 1 Corinthians 13, what Paul is doing here is he is speaking to a church that is, that is wild and passionate and free, a church that has completely lost their way. And so 1 Corinthians 13, if anything, it's really a rebuke. It's one that we read at, at weddings, and it's, it's one that brings us a lot of, uh, in, you know, maybe encouragement. But if anything, 1 Corinthians 13 is a rebuke. It's a statement to this church that there is this way of Jesus, there is this way of love, and that what you do in this life only really matters if you're anchored into this way. So I want you to, 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 to see these, these verses maybe in that light and through that lens. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clinging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So Paul is really speaking to this church in Corinth about another way. He's, he's speaking to them about another way to live, and in it's, it's a way that I tell you, you friends this morning that, that we have in many ways abandoned as a broader church, as a, as a greater church, and it has to be reclaimed. It has to be reclaimed, and that's why today we're talking about the way of humility, if you're taking notes, the way of humility. You see, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, Paul begins to give his first thoughts about love. Like, like, like the verse three verses, he's talking uh, you know, about actions and things we do, but if we don't do them in love, then, then what's the point? But, but verse four, he, get, he begins to define what love really is. 
And he says this in verse 4, he says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. And so here, here's, what, here's what Paul's really saying, like if, if you're taking notes, he's saying that love is humble. Love is humble. It's the first thought he gives. It's the first description that Paul gives to us about love is that it is humble. That it is humble and that the way of Jesus is the way of humility. I love what N.T. Wright says, he says this, he says that the heart of the Christian ethic is humility. At the heart of its parodies is pride, different roads with different destinations, and the destinations color the character of those who travel by them. And what Wright is really saying, he's saying, like, hey, we all, we have virtues that, that make us really who we are as Christians. Like, that, that's, that's true. We have virtues, and they're virtues because they are true of Jesus. And so Jesus declares that they must be true of us as well. At the core of these virtues is humility. Psalm 25, verse 9 says this. It says, he leads the humble in what is right, teaches the humble his way. Leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. I think it's fair to say that this text means this. That it is only the humble who will know what is right. And therefore, only the humble who will know his way. And we're trying to be people who live into the way of Jesus. I really think that this, this verse teaches that it is only the humble who will know his way. Humility, listen, it's more than a disposition. Humility is more than an ideal. Humility is, is, is more than just, just uh, you know, a, a good theory. It's the way of Jesus, and, and it's a way that he is inviting us into here this morning. I'm going to spend the rest of our time really out of Luke 14. If, if you want to find that in your Bible, you can. It's going to be on the screen, but there's a lot of verses to get through. And, um, Luke 14 is a place in the Gospels where we really discover the way of humility in Jesus. And I want to just read this whole story uh, to you. It's 14 verses, and, and then uh, I'm going to just expand upon it. So uh, it says, One Sabbath when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of, in the law, is it, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 12, then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Luke 14 is really this conversation where Jesus is at a dinner party with the Pharisees, and at this party, he's confronting this question of, of whether or not him healing on the Sabbath day is a violation of their law. Like, is it some sort of form of work? 
And so I want you just to imagine this story with me for a little bit, sort of insert yourself into what's going on here, because Jesus has been invited to the home of a prominent Pharisee. And, and make no mistake, you know, at, at this time, you know, there are a lot of mixed ideas about who Jesus is. A lot of mixed ideas going around on who Jesus is. And so this invitation for Jesus to come to this man's house, like, like it probably came with at least some ill intent. Like we already know that, that the Pharisees are, are watching Jesus closely. They are looking for a reason to accuse him. And so there's probably some ill motive that, that, that is behind the invitation in the first place. But it's not, it's not all of it. Like Jesus isn't invited to this house just solely so they can try to trap him. Like what you got to understand about the Pharisees that we read about in the Gospels is that they're also very curious about Jesus. There's some things about him that like they want to know more. They want to know like, like why did he say it that way or why is he doing it this way or why does he have such a, a following? And at this time in Jesus' ministry, I mean he's at the height of his popularity. And so to have, so to have Jesus over to your house for a, a, a dinner would have been like a profound honor at the time. And so if you can just imagine the atmosphere, you have this, this very, very prominent Pharisee, he's a wealthy man. Think about the people that he would be inviting over to his house at the time. I mean, these are people probably of a similar sort of prominent status. Everyone's wearing their best clothes. Everyone's showing up like dressed to the nine. The food, the wine, it's all the best. Spare no expense. And Rabbi Jesus ends up being on this invite list to this dinner party. So as the, as the story goes, as Jesus is on his way into this house, there is a man who our scriptures say is suffering from dropsy. Now, dropsy is an old term that refers to the swelling of soft tissue due to the accumulation of excess water in your body. So dropsy is this condition that would cause someone to continue to eat or drink even when they didn't need to uh, because they could not satisfy their thirst. So no matter how much they ate, no matter how much they drank, uh, they could not satisfy their hunger. They could not satisfy their thirst. It was an incredibly painful condition. The result was usually, uh, you know, severe swelling in your body. Sores would eventually break out. This disease would cause you to become unclean according to the law, and so you wouldn't have any ability to be able to, be able to participate in family life or have any sort of, like, active life in temple worship. You would have been viewed as an outcast, you know, living on the fringes of society. And Luke here, in, in Luke 14, Luke tells us that there is a man who was suffering from this condition who was not invited to the party, who has a thirst that he cannot quench, and Jesus sees this man. Jesus sees this man. And, and, and I want you just to imagine what's going on here because he sees this man who is suffering and he turns, he pivots, and he looks at the Pharisees, these religious leaders, the pastors, really, of the day, and he asks them this question in verse 3. He just says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? In verse 4, it says, but they remained silent. They remained silent. In other words, they didn't answer Jesus. They wouldn't respond. So... Taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Sent him away. And in the story, what we see here is that Jesus takes hold of a man who probably hasn't been touched in a very long time. Jesus puts his arms around him in this moment and he heals him. And it's a profound miracle. It's 
unbelievable what we see. We see the kingdom of God manifested in the here and now. We see heaven come and touch down on earth. We see somebody healed from a disease and affliction in their body that they've been troubled with for a long time. But I think what grabs my attention maybe just as much is this interaction with the Pharisees. Like, why would the Pharisees not give an answer to a question that they knew the answer for? Why wouldn't they give an answer? Like, they knew the answer to the question. Why wouldn't they, they speak? What is it within the human condition that causes us to not give an answer to the questions that we know the answer to at times? You see, the Pharisees knew, this is, this is why, they knew that the answer to this one question would provoke other questions, and that made them afraid, and so they remained silent. They remain silent. You answer this question, now there's going to be a whole bunch of other questions you've got to start answering or start to deal with, and it, it's going to cause some serious problems. And so even though they knew the answer, they weren't going to admit it. Because if you admit it, it means that there's now other questions and other answers that are going to start to undo who you are. The fear is that the answer is going to cause other questions that will disrupt your life. That's what's going on with the Pharisees in this story. It's not just the one question that they're remaining silent about. They're, they're afraid that by answering that question, it's going to cause other questions that would ultimately disrupt the life that they are living. There's fear in them, which is why if you're taking notes, I want you to catch this thought. Fear is the seed and the spirit of the Pharisee. Fear is the seed and the spirit of the Pharisee. Being unwilling to step into the answers that you know because you're afraid of how much those answers are going to undo parts of your life. It's the seed and the spirit of the Pharisees. See, we make the, we make the Pharisees out to be the villains in the Bible. Like, we do this all the time. But I think it's, it's a pretty unfair characterization, both, both because of what the Scriptures teach and, and, uh, and because of the reality of who the Pharisees were. Now, there were absolutely some Pharisees that were, that were arrogant, that were you know, people that you wouldn't want to necessarily be friends with. There were selfish Pharisees. There were power-grabbing Pharisees, no doubt. But the vast majority of the Pharisaical community were men who longed to please God with their lives. The vast majority of them. Many of them did, did, actually, did, did some, some, some pretty good things in their community. But you want to know what made a Pharisee a Pharisee? You want to know what made them Pharisees? They were afraid. They were afraid. They were so afraid of failing because they were convinced that the Messiah would only come if they were perfect. And so they lived in this constant fear of having to do everything perfect or the Messiah wouldn't come. And so because they were afraid of their own imperfections, stopping the Messiah from coming, they came up with all of these legalistic rules and, and things you had to abide by. They did this because they were afraid. And as a result, God stopped being able to move in their life. And everything about their religious experience was hollow. So don't ever think that anger is what makes a Pharisee a Pharisee. Don't ever think that hatred is what makes a Pharisee a Pharisee. The seed is always the same. It's always, it's always fear. And so on one hand, you have the Pharisees in this story, right? And you see what's going on with them. They're, 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 they're just filled with fear. Like, if I do this, if I answer this... I mean, if we allow this one healing for this one man, like, what is that going to mean? What's that going to start to undo? What's that going to begin to require of us? So you see this in the Pharisees over here, but then on the other side, you see Jesus, and Jesus is just radical, right? 
Like, is there like a, maybe a better word to describe him? I don't know, there's so many, but he's just radical, at least in comparison to the Pharisees. Jesus is radical, and, and I, I, what I mean by that is like when Jesus invited you to pick up your cross, you know that he wasn't being metaphorical. When he invited you to lay down your life, Jesus wasn't being symbolic. When he invited you into this radical way of life, he wasn't speaking philosophically. Jesus is radical. He's, 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 he's radical. He's, he's like, hey, come on, let's be all in. And what happens oftentimes is we get to these points in our Christian life where we're moving forward and then fear seizes us. We might know the answer to the question at hand, but we wonder, what will this question require of me? What will this answer to this question require of me? What other questions will follow the answer? What other questions will follow the answer? Questions like, am I really willing to lay down my life? How bold am I really, really willing to be? How humble am I willing to be? What other questions are going to follow if I answer that question? What about my finances? What about my career? What about my life? What about everything I control? What about everything I have going on? What about what I want in this life? This is how easy it is to get to the place where fear robs us from the life that Jesus has, has invited us into. And fear is the seed and the spirit of the Pharisees. Where we don't want to answer the questions that we know the answer to because we're afraid of what the answer is going to require of our life. And fear robs us from the life that Jesus invites us into. If you're taking notes, I want you to catch this big thought today. Everything God has planned for your life goes through the door of fear. Everything God has planned for your life goes through the door of fear. You see, the door of fear says, says this. It says, what if I actually say yes? That's the door of fear. What if I say yes? Your future goes through that window. It goes through that path. It goes through that door. Jesus is just simply waiting for your yes. And this is why I don't think most of the church is functioning with real authority to live the way of Jesus because too many of us have stopped at, the, at, at a question of fear. Like, what is this going to require of me? What am I going to have to give up? What am I going to have to lay down? And rather than allowing the boldness and the fullness of Jesus to come in and through us, we are people who are stuck in fear. It's the seed and the spirit of the Pharisee. And in this story, what you see happen is that Jesus takes hold of this man, and he heals him. Jesus kneels down, he embraces this man, and then he, he like radically heals him. And I would imagine at this moment, the party begins to change. It takes a pretty serious turn. I imagine things start dying down immediately. It's like at a modern-day party where you get the sound system and someone unplugs you know, the speakers. It's like everything just comes to a, a screeching halt. I, I would imagine that's probably what's going on here as people are starting to, to realize, hey, Jesus just healed this man and like, why, why was that man even here in the first place? Like, I, I don't even remember inviting him. I imagine Jesus then sitting down. And the rest of the guests, they come and they sit down as well. And remember, these are dis distinguished guests. People who would have uh, had a prominent status. And in Jesus' world, where they sat, said a lot about how distinguished they really were. Where they sat down at the table. So you can imagine these guests trying to determine who will sit there, where. It's, it's, it's going to be probably a little bit of an awkward environment. Oh, oh you're sitting there. Okay, um, I guess I'll just sit here. You can imagine the arrogance in the atmosphere of a party like this. 
trying to decide where they are going to sit. And once they're seated, Jesus essentially rebukes them. He says, hey, let me just tell you a little parable here. Now, you know, Jesus, like, like we get it. Like the parable, it's not just, it's like about us. You know, like, like you can tell, like, it, hey, I'm just going to tell you a story, you know. No, it's not just a story. It's like a story about, about us. And I don't know that they were necessarily able to see it, but Jesus tells them this parable. He says, hey, when you're invited over to a dinner party, don't do what you just did. That's really what he says. Don't do what you just did. Instead, humble yourself and take the low seat. And if the host of your party wants to honor you, they will come over and pull you to a seat of honor. And then Jesus speaks this incredible truth in verse 11. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is really saying here that there is this spiritual truth around humility, that if you knew it, it would actually show up in your everyday life. That's what he's saying to these Pharisees. There's this spiritual truth around humility, and if you knew it, you'd, you'd walk this out in, in your everyday life. It would manifest. It would show up everywhere you go. He's saying to them, if you really knew who God was, and you really knew this way of humility, it would show up in how you come to dinner parties. Show up in how you come to dinner parties. And then Jesus, he just turns and he starts to rebuke the host starts to rebuke the host. And he says, hey, and when you have dinner parties, yeah, yeah, you, when you have dinner parties, you shouldn't invite the people you just invited. These guests will throw their own party one day and pay you back when they invite you to that party. He says, but instead, when you invite people to dinner parties, you should invite cripples, beggars, the lame, the blind, the homeless, because they will never be able to pay you back. And you'll be, you'll be paid back at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, there's a lot to try to unpack and to try to understand. How do you take something from like first, a first century parable and like it doesn't copy and paste real well. Like what does this, what does this really mean? What's really going on in this story? Here, here, here's, here's one of the, 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 big, the big things you, you got to pick up if you're taking notes. You see, the Pharisees didn't, did not understand the kind of tables that Jesus belonged to. I was reading this story this week and, I, and I, like this is one of the big thoughts that just like just came huge to me. I, 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 I just sat there at this coffee shop as I'm writing this sermon. I'm like, man, the Pharisees don't understand the kind of tables that Jesus belongs to. Jesus is telling them this. He's saying, like, I don't belong to this table. I, I belong to tables for the humble. Like, I, this isn't the table I belong to. The banquets I throw are not for the self-righteous. They're for the humble. The kind of parties I lead are not these kinds of parties. That's what Jesus is communicating in this story. Because the way of Jesus is the way of humility. The way of Jesus is the way of Humility. One of the big thoughts that I think just, just shines through this story, it, just really one thought um, that I want to try to communicate. Like if this, is, if this is really all you get, um, I'd love for you to get this. And it, it's just this if you're taking notes. that Many came to hear Jesus, but the only one who found him was the one who did not try to hide his true condition. Many came to hear Jesus, but the only one who found him was the one who didn't try to hide his true condition. Like, I have no idea how many people were at this party. But I want you to think about the tragedy of this party, and I want you to see this for your own life. I mean, maybe there's 20 men, maybe there's 30 men. I have no idea how many people are packed into this home of this prominent Pharisee. But there is only one who found Jesus, and it was the one who didn't try to hide his true condition. 
You see, in this story, Jesus gives himself to the humble. He doesn't give himself to those who think that they're righteous. And I just wonder how many times we miss out on God's movement in our lives because we'd rather show up to meet him in our false condition than we would in our true condition. I wonder how many times we miss out on the movement of God in our lives because we show up to meet him in our false condition rather than showing up to meet him in our true condition. You see, God's looking for a church that's going to stop showing up and acting like everything's okay. A church that is content to show up to just meet him in their false condition. He's looking for something different than that because he's looking to give himself to the humble. Jesus gives himself to the humble. There was only one man who received from Jesus that night, and it was the one who showed up in his true condition, the one who dropped the mask, the one who, who, who didn't care what other people thought, the one who was willing to be vulnerable, willing to just come to Jesus and say, like, this is who I am. This is what's going on in me, and I need you, Jesus. I need you to touch my life. I need you to change things in me. I don't have it all together. Life isn't perfect. Life isn't okay. And this man finds Jesus. Jesus radically heals him. The man who finds Jesus is the one who was willing to outwardly represent what was true inside of him. He comes before Jesus. Jesus lays it all out there. Outwardly representing what was true inside of him. And this, this just reminds us that the kinds of tables that Jesus sets are tables for the humble. For the ones who are not willing to be convinced of their own self-righteousness. See, there's a reason why the Pharisees didn't invite crippled people to their dinner parties. There's a reason why they didn't invite the lame to their dinner parties. There's a reason why they didn't invite the blind to their dinner parties or the homeless to their dinner parties. It's because the Pharisees are thinking that they're better off than they actually are. There's a reason why they're not associating with these types of people because there is an assumption on their part that they're better off than they really are. There is an enormous level of pride existing in the Pharisees. And Tim, I'm just going to invite you guys up wherever you're at. There's an enormous amount of pride in these Pharisees. Thinking that they're better than they really are. And I just got this thought for you today, if you're taking notes. Like, if you, if you knew who you were at Jesus' table, humility would manifest in your life. If you knew who you were at Jesus' table, humility would manifest in your life. You and I, at Jesus' table, you, you, know what, you, know, you know what you and I are? We are, we're both, we're both the crippled and the distinguished son and daughter. Both the crippled, the blind, and the distinguished son and daughter. The kinds of tables that Jesus sets are tables for the crippled, the blind, the lame, the homeless, the outcast. And the reason why you and I are even at this table in the first place is because we were people who were invited to his table because we were people like that. And Jesus is saying to these guys, like, you have no idea the kind of parties I throw. You have no idea the kind of tables that I set. And if you and I, church, like if we knew 
who we were at Jesus' table, humility would manifest in our life. Because it's true that we are distinguished sons and daughters, no doubt. Right? That, 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 that we were sinners, now we're saints. That we have passed from a kingdom of darkness into this kingdom of light. But we were one way. He, he got us from like a pool of people that were pretty messed up that nobody else wanted and invited us to a table. Like he prepared a table for us. And if we knew who we were at Jesus' table, humility would just manifest in our life. Like, like it just would. It's like, man, I, I'm in touch with who I really am. I'm in touch with how good he is and what he has actually done in my life. I'm in touch with the fact that my sin was so great that, that, that I could have never done anything on my own to get me from there to here. I, I'm, I'm in touch with, with my reality that like my sin was so great, my issues so big, that I never belonged at this table in the first place. That it is only through the blood of Jesus, it's only through his blood that was shed and poured out on the cross of Calvary that I even have a place to sit at this table. You and I, we are both the cripple and the lame. We are the blind. We are the outcast. We are the homeless. But we are also the distinguished son and daughter. And when we know who we are and where we are at and where we sit at Jesus' table, humility manifests and flows out of our life. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, dropsy, this condition that this man had. It was for sure a physical condition. But it also ended up becoming a slang word that people would use. It was common for people to use it as a slang word, as a metaphor to describe those who had an insati insatiable craving. Like a thirst that they could not satisfy, a hunger that they could not satisfy. It was a slang word people would use. A metaphor for greed. It was a metaphor for excess. It was a metaphor for arrogance. And you can almost see in this story Jesus looking around the room. And he sees one person with physical dropsy and he looks around and he sees an entire room full of people with spiritual dropsy. And the truth then and the truth now is that Jesus is ready to heal anyone who is willing to humble themselves before him. Jesus sets different kinds of tables, church. He invites us into this radical way. He invites us into this radical humility of the laying down of our lives, of the humbling of ourselves so that we can live into the way and the life of Jesus. You cannot take on the likeness of Jesus without taking on a life of humility. Woe to us who would think that maybe we're better off than we really are. Man, woe to us who would live life in a way that would cause us to be out of touch with who we once were and what we have been transferred from and into. Some of you might be familiar with a man by the name of John Newton. He was a, a slave trader, gave himself to horrific things in his life. He encountered true salvation in Jesus and in his repentance began to give his life to the abolitionist movement. And for the rest of his life, he did whatever he could to bring the slave trade to its end. He's, he's the man who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And I love these words by John Newton. He says this, he says, I am persuaded 
that love and humility are the highest uh, attainments in the school of Christ and the brightest evidences that he is indeed our master. Like that's, we're in that school, we're students in that school, apprentices of Jesus. He says, I'm persuaded that love and humility are the highest attainments in the school of Christ. And the brightest evidence is that he is indeed our masters. And so what, what Newton is saying, they're saying like, hey, like, so what's gonna tell a broken and hurting world about our king? What is it about our lives that's gonna tell a broken and hurting world about Jesus? It's gonna be our love and our humility. It's gonna be a signpost. It's gonna be an evidence that like there is another way. And it's gonna point to Jesus. It's the way of humility, this thing that is true about Jesus and that he wants to be true of us as well. Second Corinthians chapter seven, second Chronicles seven, verse 14. I'm sorry, it says this. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Well, you know, we live at a pretty interesting time and I don't think I need to convince any of us that our, our land, our world needs some healing. But you gotta take note of the first invitation here. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, This is not a call for the humility of your neighbor. It's not a call for the humility of your boss. It's not a call for the humility of someone in your family. It's not a call for the humility of your coworker or whoever it is. It's, it's if my people. It's a call for you. It's a call for me if we humble ourselves and pray that, that, that maybe somehow, some way, God would hear from heaven. He would forgive our sin. He'd begin to heal our land. The way of Jesus is the way of humility, church. Would you stand with me here this morning? Just bow your heads for a moment as we just kind of close our time. See, all of us deal with pride. Every single one of us, it's, it's part of the human condition. Just go ahead and bow your heads for a moment. Just, just spend some time with the Lord. All of us deal with pride. It's part of the human condition. And in your life, I'm curious, what does pride usually look like when it shows up in your life? What does pride usually look like when it shows up in your life? Scriptures tell us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Man, I never want to live a life that is in opposition to God. I never want God as an opponent. If you're here today and you would just say, man, Pastor Jordan, there are some things that just get out of control when it comes to pride. Like, like there's maybe more pride in me than I even realized as we were sitting here today. And you just would, you just would acknowledge that, raise, raise your hand and say, I want to I I get rid of that. I want, I want that to go. I want that to be gone. Jesus, come and set me free. Pull out every ounce of pride that is within me. Humble me, oh God. I want to pursue the way of humility into the way of Jesus. Several hands in this room right now. Father, I just ask right now for your, your love and for your grace to come, for you to put your arms around every person here this morning just acknowledging that, man, there are, there are just some deep-rooted things in us, some pride that continues to get in the way, that continues to, to keep us from, 
from uh, living into the way of Jesus. And so I pray for transformation for every person under the sound of my voice. Oh God, set us free, make us new. Break down every wall, break down every chain. God, everything that has set itself up against the, the name of Jesus in our life, I, I pray God for you just to, just to uproot and tear down now. I pray for the likeness of Jesus, the mind of Jesus, the way of Jesus in and through us, that wherever there is sin and wherever there is, is pride, God, we would just refuse to be content, refuse to be people here today, God, who would just say, that's the way it's been, that's the way it's always gonna be, or this is just who I am, this is how I show up in this world. Lord, Lord I ask now that you would just touch the deep roots that have gone so deep inside of us, God. Uproot these things, change us, make us new, Shape us into people who reflect Jesus to this world. We give you thanks and praise in this place today. Amen.